0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm Lori Flores, a host of this podcast. And today I'm talking with Julie Weiss, the author of Corazon de Dixie, Mexicanos in the U.S. South since 1910, which has just recently been published by the University of North Carolina Press as part of their David J. Weber series in the new Borderlands history. Julie is an assistant professor of history at the University of Oregon. Her research and teaching explore themes of identity, citizenship, migration, race, and nation in a hemispheric and a global context. I actually met Julie several years ago at Yale University. I was an undergraduate student. She was a graduate student, and we were paired together in a seminar to present on a book together. And ever since then, Julie and I have followed each other through a variety of stages in our careers, from writing our dissertations to our first jobs to now our first books. So I'm so happy and proud to be talking with her today. Hi, Julie. Welcome. Thank you, Lori. It's so exciting to be interviewing you. I'm so happy about this book of yours.
1: Thank you. It's exciting to be talking about it with you. Extremely exciting.
0: Yes. So um, I want to start out by asking you to tell us more about your background. One thing I loved about the book was your acknowledgments. They're just so beautiful and reflective of, you know, how interesting a person you are. So tell us a little bit more about where you grew up, your previous, I know you worked in Mexico before you went to graduate school. Um, So tell us a little bit about yourself before you came to the subject matter of this project.
1: Sure. Well, I was raised in Los Angeles, California, in the San Fernando Valley and, um, I first became interested in this subject when I was in high school in the 1990s during Proposition 187, the very um, virulent anti immigrant ballot proposition in California. And I was attending a private high school that was, oh, what percent white and Asian? 90% white and Asian. In my graduating class of 280 something, there were two self identified or three self identified Latino students. And um, meanwhile, it's Proposition 187, and there's this incredible anti-immigrant movement happening. There were, quite visibly, all over the San Fernando Valley, many hundreds of thousands and millions of Latino immigrants. But nothing that we learned in school prepared me to understand any of that. We learned about race as a black and white thing that happened in the South, far away from us, liberal, nice, white Californians. And um, I just really had no idea... Um, why are there so many Latino immigrants here? Why does everybody hate them so much? I just didn't understand. I had no way to understand what was going on. And there were all of these walkouts happening across the city, but definitely not at my (laughs) overwhelmingly white majority, uh, private high school. So it was just sort of a confusing time for someone who, who sort of cared about the world beyond my little house or my little group of friends or whatever. Um, and, uh, When I got to college at Yale as an undergraduate, I learned that there were I remember saying to a friend, there's a whole class about the history of Mexican-Americans. I can't believe it's a whole class. I I got to take the class (laughs) and I just didn't you know, I didn't know. And the thing that's so incredible, Lori, is that as I've eventually been so lucky and privileged to join this this academic field and met all of my Latino and Mexican-American colleagues who grew up in Los Angeles also, but attending high schools that were 80% plus Latino, I thought the only reason I hadn't learned Latino history was that I was in this overwhelmingly white private high school. But no, it turns out that even in L.A. high, you know, where our colleague Micah Meskel went to high school, and that was 95% plus Latino, they also didn't learn anything. Mm-hmm. And, and then much to all of our distress, here we are. You know, I'm almost 20 years out of high school and still they're learning almost nothing in high school, except in special electives that then in certain states come under attack from the legislature. So um, it's sort of depressing, I think, to think about the lack of progress in secondary education on introducing these themes, even though they're obviously so relevant to everybody. But in any event, um, once I got to college, I learned that this was something one could learn about and study and um, be a part of. And so I started pursuing summer jobs in college in the Latino community. I had never been a very brilliant Spanish student, but it became increasingly important to me to get that that aspect together. Um, and so I moved to Mexico after college and um, began. I had been taking Spanish the whole time. I was just never particularly brilliant at it. But um When I moved to Mexico, obviously that was my opportunity to become fluent in Spanish. And I worked first as a reporter at the English language newspaper, the Mexico City News. Um, and then through that job, it was right when president Vicente Fox, um, the first opposition president of Mexico in 71 years became president. And, um, so through that job as a journalist, I interviewed someone that had become his, uh, sort of top advisor for issues related to Mexicans living in the United States. And at the conclusion of that interview, this person, Juan Hernandez, who's, um, excuse me, he was a dual citizen, a Mexican father and an American mother, a white American mother. Um, he, excuse me, um, at the end of the interview, sort of, we started talking and long story short, I ended up working for him as his, speechwriter. Uh, speech writer. And um, sort of getting involved on the side of the Mexican government with understanding what was happening with Mexican immigrants in the United States. And this was from early 2000 until really shortly after 9/11. Um, and it was a time it was a time when the economy was doing really, really well. And actually Latino immigrants were really popular in general. is sort of you could see in the media, it was right when, people understood that this was a very important demographic after the 2000 census. It was when advertisers were understanding this was a very important market. Mm -hmm. It was when the business side of the Republican party really dominated the debate in terms of, you know, we need this workforce. Um, And so it was just a very different time. And, uh, you know, after nine 11 happened, it was clear that a lot of doors were closing in that area and through some political, Things happening on the Mexican government side, the office was closed, and I came back to L.A. and did immigrants' rights work at a legal aid agency for a year and, and applied to graduate school. And it was also during those years that I became intrigued by the issue of um, immigration to the South.
0: Right. So when you got to Yale to do your doctoral work, how did you – so this inter, this interest in the South sort of started before – graduate school. And then it just went on to develop into your dissertation. Correct. So you say in the book that the South is a distinct kind of borderland. And your book certainly helps us think of the South very differently than perhaps we have learned about it. Um, you know, in our previous schooling, but also, you know, in recent scholarship in the field, I think your book is very valuable in that it gives us a different way to look at the South. Um, But first of all, you know, I'll ask why start in 1910? Why is that the year that your book starts to examine this region as important in Latino history?
1: Well, I think think if we were to look at Latino history more broadly, we would probably take it back farther because of, of relationships in the Caribbean. But certainly looking at Mexican-American history, 1910 is the year that most of us start to think about modern immigration-driven Mexican-American history as opposed to the histories that began more departing from the conquest of the Southwest and the incorporation of Mexican origin people into the United States through conquest. Um, 1910 was the beginning of the Mexican revolution and the beginning of large scale Mexican immigration to the United States. Although my colleague, Sarah Cornell at Amherst has written and the book does cite, um, about some small cases of attempts to import Mexican workers to the South in 1904, 1905. Um, and our colleague, um, Valeria jimenez Almendares looks at Mexican, um, Mexican musicians and other sort of cultural people going back and forth between New Orleans and Mexico in the 19th century. So there's certainly a history that that goes back farther. But since I'm looking largely at immigration, certainly 1910 is is the the, the key year that we think of these things as having started because that was when the Mexican Revolution began, which was such a precipitating force in Mexican immigration in the early 20th century.
0: Right. And I thought it was interesting that the way that you start out each chapter, I really liked it because you start each chapter by talking about a photograph or you present you know, your readers with a photograph or a series of photographs and you talk about them, analyze them, and sort of give your readers an entree into the subject of each chapter. So what made you decide to use that narrative technique? Because I think it's, it's an interesting one and it's one that um, is different from a lot of books.
1: Fascinating question. I love that question. I think now that I reflect on it, which no one has asked me to do, um, I think it actually has to do with my own personal learning style, to be honest with you. I, I have no talents whatsoever in art or photography, but I am often a visual learner. When I try to recall something, I often recall an image or the way the notes looked on my page, on my piece of paper, um, And so I just thought, I guess I thought it would be helpful to the reader to have a key image to associate with each chapter to help them retain the information and remember sort of visually what's the main point of this chapter. And I thought if I could put a lot of meaning into one image for each chapter, that that would actually help the reader connect to the chapter and, and retain the information.
0: Yeah, it's very effective. And I think the way that you do it for these different places you examine, New Orleans, Jim Crow, Mississippi, Arkansas, Georgia, I think you find a really great image to start each chapter. And I think it's really effective, um, not only for you know researchers and scholars reading this, but also students. I mean, this is a great book to teach, I think. Uh, so what I'd like to do is kind of have you take us through some of your chapters. You start with New Orleans. Uh And, you know, the way that you write about New Orleans, it seems like such a unique place and a unique city if we look at the history of Mexican-Americans and Mexicans in the Southwest, for instance, it looks totally different in New Orleans. Can you talk a little bit about how Mexican migrants found themselves in a completely different social place in New Orleans?
1: Sure. Um, You know, it's funny you should say that because in Southern history, of course, Southern historians um, get very annoyed when New Orleans is always trotted out as the great exception to Southern history, um, and you know hopefully the book shows some continuity between that and other cases. But it is the case that at least in Mexican American history, New Orleans is a great exception in this time period. So. Um, what happened was essentially that there were copious shipping connections between New Orleans and all of Latin America. If we think of today in New Orleans, there's a large Honduran population and that is something that grew out of Although I don't believe any historians have documented it in detail, it's something that, that's presumed to have grown out of the trade links between New Orleans and Honduras. Um, and so, but in the early 20th century, particularly during the years of the Mexican Revolution, Mexican immigration was the number one source of Latin American immigrants to New Orleans. And people would come from Mexico's Gulf Coast on uh, boats, essentially, and they would either be middle-class or upper-class people who paved their way on these boats. Perhaps some of them or some of them were more conservative. They were fleeing what they believed was the sort of left-wing excesses of the Mexican Revolution that they thought were going to be threatening their property rights or their livelihoods. Um, Or we saw also poorer Mexican immigrants who um, would work on banana boats and on other commercial shipping boats and would sort of work their way doing menial jobs to New Orleans. And many for many, working menial jobs on ships was the living that they made, and they would sail around. But in other cases, excuse me, they would either get off in New Orleans because they had planned to, or they would sort of, excuse me, just sort of disappear into the city. Um, And so what you saw in the 19-teens was a largely middle-class population of Mexican immigrants in New Orleans. But as is the case so often, Migration trails will start to be blazed by those with more resources who have the resources to navigate that migration trail. And then through time, it becomes more known and cheaper and sort of trickles down into lower socioeconomic groups. And that's exactly what happened in, in um, New Orleans. Is Over the course of the 1920s, we saw that a lot of those middle class and more conservative immigrants returned to Mexico after the more violent phase of the revolution had died down. And we saw more, more more working class Mexican immigrants um, coming at that time. And so, um, so what was interesting is that New Orleans was an immigrant city in many ways. But so was a city like Chicago, which had a roughly similar number of Mexican immigrants at this time. Um, or a city like Los Angeles that had many more. These were urban areas that were often the first or second port of call for immigrants from all over Europe, and particularly the parts of Europe that were considered non-white at the time, namely Russians, Poles, Greeks, Italians, Jews. So what happened was that if you look at scholarship on Los Angeles or scholarship on Chicago, you see that Mexican immigrants begin in this sort of uh, milieu of being uh, sort of relegated among Italians, Jews, Poles, etc., and really remain distinctly considered non-white in these other locations however in New Orleans it just plays out a little bit differently you see Mexican immigrants living not only among Italians for example but also among native-born whites also among white immigrants from places like Germany and um, Norway and England those parts of Europe that were considered whiter at the time um, you see in, in a city where there really segregation was never as pronounced in the older cities like New Orleans as it was in newer cities like Atlanta or Raleigh. Um, but certainly we see very few examples of Mexican immigrants living in all black or mostly black neighborhoods. But many examples of Mexican immigrants living in all white neighborhoods. And of course, many live in mixed neighborhoods because many people in New Orleans live in mixed neighborhoods. And in terms of the employment market you see them entering a wide range of professions and you also see them experiencing upward social mobility. George Sanchez is showing downward social mobility at this time for Mexican immigrants in Los Angeles because of discrimination. But in new Orleans, we actually see upward some upward social mobility, people who come work in class and eventually work their way a little bit up. Um, And so, you know, there's a footnote in a master's thesis that was written about Latin American immigrants in the forties where the sociologist uh, master's student says, you know, sometimes the Latin American immigrant is mistaken for a Negro, and in those cases he is discriminated against. Um, so it's certainly easy to imagine that those who were darker skinned uh, were mistaken for African Americans or, or treated very poorly in particular scenarios. But as a whole, they were attending, their children were attending the white schools, they were living in mixed neighborhoods, um, and they enjoyed some amount of social mobility. And so as best I can tell, we're such a, what's so exciting about our field is that it's emerging and there's always new case studies coming out. Um, but certainly from what I've seen so far, it's really the only case study in that time period that plays out in this way.
0: Right. You would do mention that Mexican culture was sort of Europeanized in some yes. ways.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, because at the time, New Orleans is competing with places like Galveston and Tampa, to be the gateway of the Americas. And they, um, the business community of New Orleans really sees incredible economic opportunity in Latin America. And that this is going to be the economic force that's going to propel the city of New Orleans forward. And so if you think about, for example, scholarship on the humiliating medical inspections that occurred at the border in places like El Paso, well, in New Orleans, you have local officials actually writing to the federal government And saying, we can't really have these humiliating medical inspections because we don't want to scare off the businessmen from Latin America that we're trying to attract to our city. So on the willingness of the city elites, there was a very strong sense of investment in the economic potential of Latin America. Um, And then for their part on the side of Mexican elites, they essentially were sort of hobnobbing with these white New Orleans elites, even in a time um, This was a time of hardening segregation against African-Americans, particularly in the 1920s. Uh, But you see Mexican elites hobnobbing with um, white elites and essentially trying to present this idea that, yes, we just had this revolution that was kind of a left-wing revolution, but actually, trust me, it's all very moderate. Everything's under control and we have an outstanding business climate um, for you to be engaging with. And so meanwhile, the poor Mexican immigrants basically had the opportunity to sort of disappear, if you will, to go live in dispersed neighborhoods. There was no barrio. There was no industry that they were concentrated in. Um, And so working class Mexican immigrants really had the opportunity to not have a community life and to sort of really just disappear into the city um, as an identifiable group. And that's ultimately what they did.
0: Right. And in the 1920s, it's interesting because we see this ramping up of you know the national immigration bureaucracy the border patrol is founded and like you said those migrants crossing over land are enduring these kind of very heavy medical and physical inspections but this maritime migration makes things different
1: yes that's exactly right because they're coming on ships with with upper class latin americans and also with american businessmen and there is attempts by the federal government people are boarding these ships to do medical inspection. And certainly it could have been the case that someone who appeared to be a working class Mexican or Latin American immigrant would be particularly targeted for that. But you really see on the part of local authorities, pressure on the federal government not to do that and to make these medical inspections as quick and painless or even perfunctory as possible. um, Essentially because they, they don't want to do anything to hinder trade. And it's interesting. It just reminds me of, you know, boom times later on in the 20th century, when you have local authorities pressuring the federal government, no immigration enforcement in my area because we need this labor force. It's for a different economic reason, the promotion of trade versus the need for a labor force. But it's still that same dynamic that in some ways plays into the southern states' rights, sort of anti-federal government history that we've obviously seen in that region for many hundreds of years.
0: Right. Right. Julie, in your chapter that comes after New Orleans, you move us to Jim Crow, Mississippi. So in that state, how did Mexican migration and the position of Mexican migrants in that racial hierarchy of white and black, how did that look different?
1: Well, it sort of changed. It really changed over time. So what happened was that, you know, we shouldn't be surprised Southern white, uh, cotton planters have been, since emancipation, looking for sources of immigrant labor that they believe will allow them not to rely on African Americans anymore, or will make it easier to rely on African Americans, because there's direct quotes in Moon Ho Jung's work where basically the planters are saying, you know, if we bring in Chinese, the blacks will see them. And that will teach the blacks that they need to do this job at any price under any conditions and that we're not we don't actually need them as badly as they think we do. Of course, not these experiments worked, but we shouldn't be surprised that um, that Mississippi cotton planters are seeing what's happening in Texas and California and the incredible labor source that cotton planters in those places have via Mexico and Mexican immigration. And they want that labor source, too. So they begin sending recruiters to South Texas, um, and Sarah Cornell's work that shows that some of this was going on as early as 1904 and 1905, but it's really picking up after you know World War One and in the in the Roaring Twenties. Um, they're sending recruiters to Texas, like everybody is. You know, Midwestern you know, Midwestern agricultural interests are recruiting in Texas at this time, California, Arizona, Colorado, you name it. Everyone's going to Texas to try to bring Mexican workers to their work sites. And of course, we know that the Texas agriculturalists are not pleased about this and are using every means, including violence, to keep Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in their place. Um, But in this case, the The Mississippi planters do succeed in recruiting Mexican workers to the Delta, um, the Mississippi Delta area. I put the peak of that around 1925. There were observers said probably about 5,000 Mexicans and Mexican-Americans working on Mississippi cotton plantations at that time. And at one point, a priest says that every single plantation has Mexican workers on it. And these observers use the word Mexican, um, but... When I look at census data, I see that it was about five, six Mexican and about one, six Tejano, Um, but that almost everyone had been living first in South Texas. And so what happens is that when these immigrants are recruited, immigrants and Mexican Americans are recruited, they are made fabulous promises. you are gonna make $8 a day. Um, They're made fabulous promises by the enganchadores, the recruiters. But when they get to Mississippi, they're essentially treated the same as African Americans were. They're paid whatever someone feels like paying them, um, and they are definitively subject to violence if they try to leave their work sites. Um, Death, violence, imprisonment is what befalls them if they decide that a particular plantation uh, is not living up to what was agreed upon when they signed up with their enganchador. Um, But the difference is, and this is something that's similar to New Orleans, um, that Mexicans have this international source of power that African Americans do not have. Um, And that source of power is the post-revolutionary Mexican government, which was not... I wouldn't over-exaggerate their power, but the power that they had, they were able to use effectively. And so you see cases where word gets back to Texas or to the Mexican consulate in New Orleans about difficult or uh, violent conditions on these plantations. And eventually the Mexican government in Mexico City gets alerted and intervenes, either with the U.S. federal government or with local authorities in Mississippi. And they're basically able to... Uh, exert some pressure on these local authorities and on the U.S. federal government to somewhat improve the conditions of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in Texas. Additionally, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans at this time have these family networks that spread through South Texas, through Mexico, in many cases through the Midwest or California or Throughout the United States, they have through family networks familiarity with a wide variety of work opportunities throughout the United States, um, and so in that way they're also they're also more difficult to control than African Americans because they have family networks in all these different places and in a, a greater ability, frankly, to escape and go to a different place and an understanding that they can get a job in a different place, um, and so as a result, they just end up being um, they end up being a bit more powerful than African Americans were in this particular time and place. And as a result, over time, we see that the planters are actually forced to treat them better, and they start to be treated better than African Americans over the course of the 1920s. And at the end of the 1920s, they actually secure their children's admission to the white school, um, at least in one part of the Delta, again, because the Mexican government intervened on their behalf. So planters basically thought... And at the beginning, it certainly was the case that they were being treated the same as African-Americans. But over time, they had leverage that African-Americans didn't have, um, largely through their government and through their family networks um, that enabled them to have more mobility. Uh, And so as a result, we start to see really by the 1930s that now the kids are in the white schools. We know that white power holders in this region are really obsessed with the issue of preventing the rise of African-Americans, and they are more focused on that. And ultimately, we see that if if admitting Mexicans to the white side is what it's going to take to uh, continue having access to this labor force, the white power holders are basically willing to do it. Uh, And so as a result, you start to see Mexicans and Mexican-Americans marrying white people by the 1940s. Um, During that decade, some are excluded from white schools, but more are admitted. Uh, And finally, by the time we get to the civil rights movement, Mexican-Americans, those that are from the Delta, are largely on the white side. I can't think of cases where they are activists against desegregation, but certainly I also can't think of cases uh, where Mexican-Americans in the Delta were fighting with African-Americans. There's other scholars that are looking at uh, collaboration between UFW organizers from the Southwest who came to Mississippi. But in terms of the Mexican Americans that were from there, um, they really, they would do things like uh, change the spelling of their last names. Even to this day, when one goes to the Delta, um, you see people who are dark skinned, who have a Hispanic surname and they're hanging with white people. Everyone knows that they're a little different from the other white people, but they're still white people. And, um, you know, my experience trying to ask some of them about their experiences is that it's, it's really not on the table to discuss it. It's, it's daddy came from Texas or granddad came from Texas, and that's it. Um, you know, with the exception of one wonderful person I got to know, Richard Enriquez, who is a, a product of these migrations, who his whole life just felt sort of angry that other Mexican-Americans were sort of hiding or um, working so hard to assimilate with white people. And he really got interested in this and got a master's degree in history and uh, really is actively interested in his Mexican heritage. But he he always felt very isolated in that pursuit um, as compared to friends and cousins that he grew up with who were much more inclined not to talk about it. And for good reason, because we know how much violence befell African-Americans in that area. Uh, And so people had the opportunity to avoid that kind of fate and they took it.
0: Now, how did African-Americans look at a Mexicana workforce? First of all, they're coming in and uh, replacing them in part in field jobs, right, in agriculture. But they also, like you said, have this greater leverage in the form of the help of the Mexican government or the Mexican consulate. So how were African-Americans reacting to all of this?
1: It's extremely difficult to tell in the earlier period. Um, the black newspapers from that area were really more social pages. They, they didn't get deep into these kinds of issues. Um, and it's just extremely difficult to tell. Once we get into the World War II period, I was able to conduct interviews, and so I have better information about that, But um, and the post-World War II period. But, well, the evidence we do have is that there was definitely intermarriage um, between blacks and Mexicans, uh, largely Mexican men marrying black women, there were definitely Mexican men that boarded in the homes of African Americans. Uh, the manuscript census shows a black family with a resident named Mexican Sam. Is how he's recorded, wow. and um, Mexican Sam's birthplace is Mexico. And but he's recorded as Negro by the census uh, by the census enumerator, which gives us some sense of the the way that he was perceived from having lived with an African-American family. Mm -hmm. Um, I certainly have not found any evidence of open conflict, that kind of a thing. And I think in many ways, we're looking at a period in African-American history when African-Americans are starting to, not all, but in large part, are starting to uh, turn away from the idea that they can have a prosperous future in agriculture, period. Um, we see things, you know, shortly later, like the Southern Tenant Farmers Union uh, in the 1930s. We see cross-racial organizing efforts that had happened previously among, among tenant farmers and sharecroppers. And this is sort of a period when African-Americans are starting to reject the idea of having any future, in Southern agriculture and really just preferring to get out. And so in that sense, and and, and we're still in transition in this earlier period in the 1920s, but I don't at all take as a foregone conclusion that there would have been um, necessarily widespread resentment. Um, There may have been, but like I said, we also see evidence of these families blending um, and we see that this is a period when increasing numbers of African-Americans, their goal is to get out. They've given up on trying to change things where they are. Um, and so in that sense, unfortunately, I don't I just don't have as many sources I'd like to have on this from the 1920s. Um, but I do I do have better sources on it, oral history as as the decades move on and people were still alive for me to talk with them.
0: And in the World War Two period, this is where we see a lot of black migration out to the West or to industrial centers, right? So this is Mm -hmm. when we start to get Braceros coming into the U.S. South and you have a chapter on Arkansas and the place of Braceros, Tejanos, these other migrant workers coming into the South. How did the Bracero program or how did Bracero's work look different in the South compared to studies that have been done about braceros in other regions.
1: You mean in terms of the labor, where they fit into the labor market?
0: Well, I know that you talk a a lot about the consulate continues to be a big actor in Arkansas, and the consuls continue to offer help in some measure to braceros who were complaining about mistreatment, um, deduction of illegal deductions of wages, their food, their housing, these other conditions that they're experiencing. In my own work in the Salinas Valley, I found that the consulate was not very helpful. So do you think that there was something in particular about the South that made the consulate a bit more powerful when it came to helping braceros? Or do you think it's just... Uh, an individual matter of locality and there's no generalizations to be made there.
1: I think it's a part of each. It's a part structural and it's a part um, contingent, just the particular console that got assigned to that area. I think the structural piece is that the work on Braceros in the Northwest has shown a similar phenomenon that the farther one got from the border, the more desperate the employers were for bracero labor, the less access they had to undocumented and Tejano workers, and so as a result, we actually saw um, in in some of the work on um, on the Northwest Singamboa's work a somewhat similar phenomenon that that the control over the supply of labor, the threat of blacklisting, was very uh, threatening to those that were farther from the border because they didn't have that easy recourse rather to undocumented workers. Um, And so I think a part of it is that dimension that in Arkansas, uh, they had, um, you know, Arkansas had more modern, um, efficient, if you will, agricultural systems than Mississippi did. It had been developed later, Um, but still it was a more labor dependent, uh, later to mechanize smaller scale farming, State than a place like Texas or california um, it was it was again more modern than Mississippi but or or um, deeper parts of the south, but it it was definitely less modern than Texas or California, more labor dependent excuse me, and farther from the border, so they didn't have the same type of access to undocumented workers and so for those reasons, it was a real threat the idea that we are going to cancel your bracero contracts. That the Mexican government actually was controlling the flow of this labor and had the ability to turn the faucet off if uh, employers and communities in Arkansas did not treat braceros properly was a real threat. And so in that sense, I think they just had more structural power in Arkansas, similar to what we saw in the Pacific Northwest in the same period. And I think there's also just a contingent dimension of which consul got assigned to this location. And I can't say that I've come up with a grand theory of why this more activist guy ended up being the person in Arkansas. But that's what happened. Um, And the documentary evidence is really quite compelling. He didn't succeed every time, obviously, but this is someone who's writing letters to employers and to the U.S. government literally over disputes as little as one dollar. Um, someone who is taking up what appears to be just about every issue that comes his way from a bracero. And and I think we also see this in a story where uh, I believe it was 50 to 100 braceros walk 100 miles in the winter in November to Memphis to visit the consulate and lodge a complaint. And to me, that's just not something that they would have done if they thought this was going to be an indifferent bureaucrat. So I think there's a lot of evidence that both for structural reasons and because of this individual consul that was assigned to this particular place, that the, the consul was, was really an activist on behalf of braceros. And it is highly unusual, as you say, Laurie. It's, certainly it's not the only case where you see Mexican consuls accomplishing something on behalf of braceros. Um, but I think, I think it's, it's not the norm. It's obviously not the norm, as, as we can tell from other people's scholarship. Um, and so basically what we see on the part of the white farmers is that somewhat like Mississippi, uh, they are—they end up being willing to cave on the racial element. And so they're willing to let Mexicans, you know, force store owners to let Mexicans into white stores, white restaurants, white establishments. Um, they're willing to, to really uh, force that issue that Mexicans should be admitted to white public space. What they fight back on constantly are economic issues. Um, And I think it's just an interesting window into Jim Crow in this time period. I think it would obviously be oversimplified to say that Jim Crow was only about economics and getting labor needs met. But you do see here a case where the the farmers are clearly prioritizing getting their labor needs met over strictly preserving uh, a particular form of white supremacy that would exclude Mexicans. Their their number one interest here is, is, frankly, economic. And they're willing to, to compromise a bit on the way white supremacy is going to look in their area if that's what it takes to get continued access to this labor source.
0: So did these Bracero blacklists actually happen or were they just threats of blacklists? Because we all know about the you know famous Bracero blacklist of Texas during World War II. But did these blacklists in place, places like Arkansas actually Uh, happen? Or was it just the the specter of them that affected how um, agriculturalists were treating their workers?
1: Many of them did happen. Absolutely, many of them did happen. I saw documentary evidence of farmers petitioning to get off the blacklist, documentary evidence of farmers contracting through a friend or relative because he himself had been blacklisted and then he would get found out. And the friend or relative would then get blacklisted. Um, I highly doubt that it happened in every case. Um, that's sort of an absence of evidence thing. I can't follow up on every case. I highly doubt that it was followed through on in every case, but definitively there were cases where it was followed through on. Um, and there were cases where, where it didn't quite work out. So there was a farmer, um, that was under investigation and, um, And finally, I believe it was the U.S. government that convinced the Mexican government, let's not blacklist the farmer. Let's just give the braceros the opportunity to depart voluntarily, you know, at the expense of our governments if they want to. And, of course, most of the braceros stayed because despite the violations at this farm, it was worth it to them to acquire the dollars. That's what they had risked their reputations and spent some of their savings to do was go to the U.S. and bring home dollars. And so most of the braceros choose to stay at this farm, despite the violations that had occurred there. So certainly we see cases where the Mexican government's efforts failed, but definitively there are cases where the blacklists lasted for years um, and farmers were excluded from, from bracero contracting for years. Uh, and so that was enough to scare other farmers. Once you have invested in planting the crop, you need to get it out of the ground. Um, so there was really incredible, uh, incredible economic risk and the cost of caving a little bit on this or that item, um, was often less than the risk of, of letting one's crop go to, go to waste.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, And I found myself asking, you know, where are the undocumented workers in this story? And I think, um, that's an interesting point you bring up about geography and the, the farther away you are from the border, the more kind of power Braceros may have if they don't have this additional competition in the form of the undocumented worker. Did you find anything about even maybe a few undocumented workers that were um, in Arkansas or other places in the South that were using a lot of Bracero labor?
1: Yeah, absolutely. They were there. Um, They were there in Arkansas. And... um, Hold on one moment. I'm going to look up the number. But, yes, they were absolutely there in Arkansas. Um, but the the access to them was just not that same sense of we can get as many as we want, anytime we want, wherever we want, mm-hmm. that a, a Texas farmer would obviously have had. And eventually probably a California farmer as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I'm not finding it here, but there were definitely, yeah, there were definitely, if you look at reports of the... Um, uh, Agricultural Extension Service, you see that there were definitely undocumented, what are referred to in the documents as wetback Mexicans, um, are definitely uh, present in Arkansas in various time periods. But I, don't, I did not see evidence that there, that there were farmers that were able to wholesale say, screw the Bracero program, I'm just going to work with undocumented workers. That mm-hmm. would have been a, a risky strategy for a farmer in Arkansas.
0: Right. So the so-called, quote, wetback era looks very different if we look at the South.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's Tejano's too. That's the other thing. Everyone's loving them too, because the Tejano's don't have a government supporting them. The U.S. government is not really supporting them. Mm -hmm. So um, there's, you know, they they would love to have Tejano labor. They would love to have undocumented labor. Obviously, we know that the Texas Farm Placement Service is exerting some violence and control and, and Texas farmers are exerting some violence and control to keep Tejanos from leaving Texas. Um, there's a, a, a congressional testimony, actually, where a farmer in Louisiana says, well, you know, unfortunately, the Texas Mexicans are not allowed to leave Texas, so we can't get them. As though in America, <laughs> <you> just, <laughs> just tell someone they can't get Texas, but you could in the time. Um, that's what farmers and local authorities were able to do. So. Um, So yeah, they were, they were there, they were in the mix, but the access was just not sufficiently. um, There was not that sense of on-demand access that I can get the worker where I want him, when I want him for as long as I want him.
0: Right, Um,
1: And that was what, what it was that dependability and that um, just incredible sense, literally, you know, a, a local authority from agricultural extension says literally come to my office and place your order for braceros. And that was, that was what was so attractive. The idea that the labor could simply be ordered up to appear at the right time at the right place in the right number. And that's what the Bracero program had that Tejano and undocumented labor in Arkansas never quite had.
0: Mm -hmm. So moving from Arkansas to Georgia, which is the state that you end the book with, um, you also introduced this topic of religion that I think is really fascinating. And, what you call pro-immigrant conservatism practiced by both growers and church leaders. So, how does the the church come into this story in the '60s and '70s and onward? How do Mexican Americans, Mexican migrants, and religion come together towards the end of your book?
1: Um, you know, I think we have to keep in mind what what the post-civil rights or post-civil rights movement era is like for conservative white Southerners, and particularly evangelicals. And going back to the way that we started this interview, with me sort of discussing um, what I and many people learned in high school that race is a problem of the South, it's a black and white problem, it's a problem of those bad white people over in Alabama and Georgia, not us good white people in places like LA and New York. Um, these are those so-called bad guys of the civil rights movement. These are the people whose elected leaders were standing in the doors of the schoolhouse. These are the people that were uh, you know, committing violence against civil rights workers. And they wake up to realize once the civil rights, act has been passed once civil rights and integration are at least not nominally a consensus in the wider United States, they wake up to realize that they've been on the losing side of history and that they are being judged by Americans everywhere. And what we see is right at this moment. And, and we see other scholars have established them reaching out to black leaders, apologizing, but always on an individual level, always in a way that, uh, is informed by Christianity that through penance and apology, all should be forgiven, as opposed to uh, through more structural redress, through economic aid, affirmative action, um, or things like busing that would take desegregation, that would make desegregation real, um, but through a, a somewhat forced means that busing said, you know, your white kids might have to get on a bus to a different neighborhood. So, um, so it's within this context that African-Americans are leaving the agricultural fields. They are moving to a large extent into better jobs. You still see older African-Americans doing agricultural labor, um, as well as just more marginal African-Americans, marginal to the community. Um, but the sort of mainstream African-American communities in these places are, are really moving out of agricultural labor into at least service work, something like a Walmart cashier, if not moving to cities and getting educated. Um, And so it's within this whole context that white growers, many of whom are evangelical themselves, are recruiting Mexican-Americans, first it's Tejanos, to their fields, and eventually this leads to the recruitment of Mexican immigrants. And so... As this is happening, and it's the same pattern we've seen since Mississippi, since Arkansas, oh my God, we had all these labor problems and suddenly they're solved because here's this wonderful Tejano contractor who can simply produce workers at the time and place that I need them, Um, at first from Texas, later from Florida, eventually from California, and of course from Mexico and other parts of Latin America. Within that context, you also see white churches really seeing this as an opportunity. Of course it's an opportunity for evangelization because even though evangelization is happening in Latin America at this time, the vast, vast majority of uh, Mexican immigrants and Mexican Americans at this time to the South are still Catholic. So of course this is an opportunity to save souls, but it's also an opportunity in a way to redeem white evangelical Christians who now have mostly come to accept that they were on the wrong side of the civil rights movement. So here is this group of people that are very vulnerable, very in need of charity, who come from a different part of the world. Many of these white evangelicals had been to Latin America as missionaries, had fallen in love with Latin America, had learned Spanish. And so instead of treating these newcomers as a racial threat, although that absolutely happened in certain times and places, we see particularly in the ag areas that... They treated them as opportunities for charity and opportunities to um, to integrate someone who was different from them into their church community. And, you know, we see cases where white evangelical churches in areas that are 50 percent or more black are focusing their charity on the Mexican migrant camp, which is just in so many ways easier for them. There's not that long and um, contentious history that they have, probably with many of the very same black pastors that are still um, in these black churches. And and African Americans have their own power structures, their own charity networks, and are maybe not so eager to just forgive white people for um, the many decades and centuries um, of racial oppression that they had endured. And so it becomes easier and less complicated and very attractive to uh, offer charity and uh, sort of even welcoming people into your home for Christmas, that kind of a thing, to really reach out and make a massive effort with the Mexican migrant workers um, becomes very attractive to these white evangelical communities. And of course it's attractive to the farmers who are thrilled with this labor source. Um and so uh, as a result, you see these two very powerful white constituencies in the agricultural areas of the South really uniting behind this idea that yeah, Mexicans can be here and it's okay. Um, and you see even their their very own white children maybe marrying Mexicans. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't elements among the white and black communities that are not pleased about this. But it's the more powerful members of society, the churches and the farmers, who control largely the public discourse and and create this environment in which uh, open expressions of hate toward Mexicans of the sort that we're unfortunately seeing so prominently today are really not welcome in these southern communities um, agricultural communities at this time now of course on the flip side uh, the Tejanos and later immigrant workers are really expected to um, to be grateful to uh comply with local norms And most importantly, not to become involved in labor organizing. But this is ultimately a bargain that they accept. Um, They are able to um, be in an environment where, let's say, the police are encouraged not to harass them by both evangelicals and by local authorities. So in exchange for personal safety, And the ability to work and stay in town and raise a family and earn money, and many of them were able to advance economically at that time, um, they mostly accept that bargain. And so we see in the 1970s and 80s, which is a a really widespread time of labor organizing among Mexican and Mexican origin workers throughout the U.S., we really don't see that happening in Georgia.
0: Do you think in the 21st century this church or religious religiously based charitable spirit is no more? Is it gone?
1: I think it's around. Absolutely. And we've seen, um, we've definitely seen major national evangelical organizations that have come out in favor of humane immigration reform, including amnesty. However, I haven't heard them in the news lately. Right. <laughs> you know, I think they, they've just been drowned out by this other side that I explore in um chapter five about, about Charlotte, North Carolina, This the sort of other side that I explore in terms of um, populist, sort of white, middle-class populism that is concerned about the distribution of public resources and really takes a page from Prop 187, which again was, going back to the beginning of our interview, my impetus to become interested in these topics, where basically you had suburban Californians saying, we don't want our tax dollars paying for these people's education and health care. And so that uh, type of discourse finds its way to the South really in the last decade is really when I would best date it all. You see inklings of it before, but really in the last decade, that kind of discourse finds its way to the South. And you see this very strong anti-immigrant voice coming from the white middle class, excuse me. And I think we can add to that now with Donald Trump's sort of activation of anti-immigrant parts of the white working class
0: so, as a kind of wrap up to discussing the book, what did what was your favorite part about doing this whole project? and then, on the flip side, what did you not get to do in this book that you hope future scholarship will do?
1: Oh that's such a great question. Um, I think my favorite part about doing this project was the people that I met doing it people like Richard Enriquez, a fourth generation. Mexican-American, Mississippian, um, people like the Jorcasitas family in New Orleans, who are fourth-generation Mexican-American Louisianans, um, the African-American, um, the elderly African-Americans who are willing to speak with me about their experiences with Braceros in Arkansas in the 1950s. Uh, the I was able to speak with anti-immigrant to try to understand the logic that that animated their anti-immigrant sentiments and I feel that I learned a lot from that experience so it was really the people that I met in uh in a part of the country that I hadn't had the opportunity to explore previously um, that for me left the biggest impression and that I just feel very lucky to have gotten to know some of these amazing former migrant workers who went on to become great educators of of migrant college students people like Javier Gonzalez at Abraham Baldwin College in South Georgia Um, So these were these are the people that that animated the project for me and that helped me feel that it would have an audience besides academia, Um, that there were real people in the South who were the products of these migrations, who were very eager to see those migrations chronicled in a book um, and to sort of understand the wider context of their own families' experiences.
0: Mm -hmm. I think all of us that do oral history agree that that's one of our favorite parts of our research is just getting to meet people and remind yourself that these are real people you're writing about.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And even in cases where the actors themselves were deceased, um, where I was able to find the grandson and the great grandson and that kind of a thing, uh, and sort of just talk to them about their family history was, was just a really wonderful experience. And I just feel very lucky that people were willing to take that kind of time with me. um, And in terms of what I didn't get to do, I just, there's just so much.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You know,
1: South. So, uh, there's, there were significant numbers of Mexican immigrants in the 20s in rural Louisiana about whom I really didn't get to write very much. Uh, certainly once we get into the 70s, there's a million other parts of the South that had Mexican and other Latino immigrants just waiting to be written about. And those stories may be very different from the ones that I told. Um, And I just think there's so many key issues that are raised, such as the relationship between African Americans and Mexican Americans or other Latinos, that really just bear much deeper examination through time because these are the things that media commentators like to make silly statements about and like to say things like, the Latinos will never vote for Obama, which obviously didn't happen. Um, You know, because he's black and Latinos are inherently. Racist against black people. These are the kinds of commentaries that are out there. And I just think it's very important to, to find those historical moments so we can penetrate these questions in depth. And I found some in this book, but there are obviously so many more. Uh, and I'm just really looking forward to the work of people like, uh, Ramirez, for example, at Duke, a graduate student who's doing much more in depth work about uh, racial perceptions among Mexican immigrants in North Carolina since the 1990s and just much more in-depth work looking particularly at that particular dimension. And I think that's just one example of, of the kinds of projects that I hope will be following.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm sure they will. And I wanted to ask you about your website. I know you've created this fantastic companion website to your book. Can you tell us what we could find if we went there?
1: Sure. It's uh, corazondedixie.org. And I provided the content. And the website itself was created by the Digital Scholarship Center at the University of Oregon, which is a very amazing operation. And basically, the website has primary sources from the project in both English and Spanish. And it's set up for teaching, really, so that instructors could send their students either just out of curiosity to look and see what are some of the primary sources upon which this book between covers was based to remind our students that it all started with fragments and documents and that my interpretation is not the only one. The student, if they have access to the primary source, might have a different interpretation than WISE does and could maybe have the opportunity to articulate that in a paper or an assignment. Um, So that's one part of it is simply making these primary documents available for teaching. And I do have suggested essay questions that instructors might consider using, although I'm really eager to hear from people once they start using the site. So please do email me if you use the site, listener, um, about how they use the site, if they had other essay questions or assignments that they did based on the site. I'm really eager to see it evolve uh, as instructors hopefully find it useful. Um, And I think something else that I'll highlight about the site is that it includes Spanish language documents, um, some of which are translated and some of which are not translated. And I've been working with my colleague Claudia Olguin at the University of Oregon on developing a bilingual history course and what we have, a bilingual Latino history course, excuse me, and what we found is that more than 50% of college students can Kind of read some Spanish with the help of a dictionary, whether they took it in high school, whether they're from a Latino background and learned it in the community, and there's a whole group of students that are never going to take third-year Spanish and get into advanced Latin American literature, but who can read these documents with the help of a dictionary? And they might say because of shame that their Spanish that they learned on the street is not proper Spanish, or they might say, because they still have bad feelings about their high school Spanish teacher. Oh, I don't. I took Spanish in high school, but I don't really know anything. Um, and we found it's really not true that these students can be pushed uh, and supported in reading original documents in Spanish with the help of a dictionary if the goal is a global comprehension rather than understanding each and every word. So I, I really encourage instructors to play with it um, to try to encourage your students to try to work with some of the Spanish language documents. And I, we provide a guide to working with uh, Spanish language primary sources for those who are not fluent in the language. And I also provide uh, some, some key vocabulary words that would help students make it through any of those documents. So I really hope that people will take this opportunity to, to encourage their students to work with primary documents in Spanish, even if the students studied French they can probably understand a lot of the Spanish language documents. So I think there's, I know statistically, there's a wide range of college students that can get something out of a Spanish language document. And I hope that some of our colleagues will use the site in that way.
0: I really hope so too. It's a great website. I've already looked at it and it's really, really cool that you've done that alongside, you know, the monumental task of writing this book is also providing this really, Um, fun, cool, informative companion website. So everybody check out Corazondedixie.org. And, you know, I'm sure you'll be doing plenty of celebrating about this book, and you should, but uh, I want to end by asking you, what are you working on now?
1: So while I was researching this project, I was teaching in an international studies program. And so much of what my colleagues and I have examined about the Bracero program and particularly the ideas that drove the Mexican government to um, participate in it, and that drove Mexican men to to participate in it, I realized were so similar to some of the ideas that a government such as Spain or Turkey was latching onto in promoting their own um, migration programs to countries like France and Germany. And so that's what I'm trying to explore in the next project is I'm looking at case studies of managed migration, guest worker programs, however you want to call it, but case studies in the post-war period when governments got together and made bilateral agreements to move human beings across borders for the purposes of labor. And we've got definitely some scholarship that takes a look at the big question of where did this idea come from and how did it spread to the point where now there are so many millions of guest workers in the world. What I'm attempting to do is identify the same types of sources that I used in Chapter 3 and that many of us use in other work on the Bracero Program to really understand the perspectives of these workers themselves, but to do so in dialogue with The experiences and perspectives of workers in similar situations from other places, namely Spanish workers traveling uh, to Northern Europe is the second case study I'm working on right now. And uh, most likely we'll eventually add a case from the Philippines, although I'm still figuring out if the sources, to what extent the sources are available. Um, So that's what I'm interested in, is really thinking about these larger issues. What does it mean to be modern? What does it mean to support a family? What does it mean to be a man? Um, What does it mean to be a racial other? I'm trying to look at some of these questions that very much animate the scholarship on the Bracero program, but in a broader view of looking at some of the other people who found themselves in very similar situations to Baceros in other parts of the
0: world. That sounds great. So more fantastic work to come. And I want to thank you so much, Julie, for talking with us about your book, Corazón de Dixie. And it was a real pleasure talking to you today.
1: Thank you, Lori. It was wonderful talking
0: with you as well. Thanks. Thank you all so much for listening to new books in Latino studies. If you'd like to get a copy of Julie Wise's book, Corazon de Dixie Mexicanos in the U.S. South since 1910 from the University of North Carolina Press, please follow the link that is posted on the page of this podcast. If you'd like to send us an email, please send a message to newbooksinlatinostudies at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media through either Facebook or Twitter.